You're listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, award-winning volunteer and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is May 21st, 2023, and this is episode 226 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we're going to listen to part two of a three-part interview with Barry Porter, who is the author of the excellent new book, Adventures of a Lightkeeper. First, I want to remind people about a couple of lighthouse celebrations that will be happening this year. Right, Jeremy. This is the 150th anniversary of Yaquina Head Lighthouse in Oregon. The celebration there will culminate on August 20th, which was the day in 1873 when the light began service. Leading up to that date will be a variety of events and ongoing restoration projects. And speaking of Newfoundland, the Rose Blanche Lighthouse is also celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. Their celebration will be on July 22nd with a live band and a special cake. <laughs> that sounds good. Rose Blanche is the only granite lighthouse in Atlantic Canada. So, Michelle, before we hear part two of the interview with Barry Porter, let's talk a little more about the light stations where he spent his career. Sure, Jeremy. Barry started his career as a relief keeper at Bacaleo Island and then Surgeon's Cove Head Light Station. His years as a full-time principal keeper began in 1984 at Long Point Light Station on North Twillingate Island, off the northeast coast of Newfoundland. Long Point, with its distinctive red lighthouse tower, is one of the 23 light stations in Newfoundland that are still staffed by resident keepers. It's also a major tourist attraction. Barry's next stop in 1988 was Bacaleo Island Light Station. Bacaleo Island takes its name from the Portuguese word for cod. The cast iron tower with red and white spiral bands is only about 30 feet tall, but the light is 357 feet above sea level. Barry spent four years at Bacaleo Island and then returned to Surgeon's Cove Head on Exploits Island. Surgeon's Cove Headlight Station is also known as Surgeon's Cove Point. The Exploits River, the longest river in Newfoundland, empties into the Bay of Exploits, which contains more than 30 islands. A lighthouse was erected on Surgeon's Cove Head at the northwest point of the Exploits Island in 1911. The cast iron tower has red and white vertical stripes. Barry ended up staying at Surgeon's Cove for 10 years until it was automated in 2002. In 2003, Barry spent a brief period at Puffin Island Lighthouse off Greens Pond on the northwest side of Bonavista Bay. Then from 2003 to 2006, Barry was back at Long Point, Twillingate. He left the Canadian Coast Guard after 23 years of lightkeeping in 2006. There was so much to discuss with Barry. So let's listen to part two of my interview with Barry Porter now. Moving ahead here, you uh, your next station was Bacaleo Island. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, Bacaleo. Less, uh, which I think comes from Portuguese for cod, it's right? Portuguese name, yes. Yeah. And uh, so what was that like? How was that different from your other stations? Well, uh, Bacaleo, that's uh, a highland. It's about three, three, four miles from Earring Neck and about 11 miles west of Fogum. Uh, it's a small island, about two miles long a third to a quarter of a mile wide. Uh, it was built in 18, the light was built in 1894, I think. That's uh, much more isolated 
uh, Leudex then, very few visitors, just strictly a bit of fishing and shipping going by. So, uh, and the dwelling was, uh, the whole dwelling, the light tower is up on the very highest part of the hill, which is uh, 348 feet above sea level, the lightest. But the dwelling was down by the ocean. They built a new dwelling for that as well. The whole one was up by the light, by the light tower. But uh, in the early 60s, they built a new dwelling down by the by the ocean. And that place was considered a bachelor's quarters. So it was a really small house. The four light keepers that, that rotated there shared two bedrooms. Uh, so you never had the room I had on Long Point Twilight or Surgeon's Covid. So it was a, a lot more remote, a lot more isolated, a lot more time with just two two people, right? Uh, said no visitors. So that's where I really got into my hobbies down there. And it was a big change from Twilight because I was I was on I, I consider dry land, pulling it there on the mainland, right? But uh, Bacalao was a smaller remote station and uh, it's still beautiful at its own beauty. But, you know, the isolation was more remote, was a little trickier that way. Tell me about the shift changeovers at, at Bacalao when uh, you had to get, get on and off the island. I think that was kind of hairy, wasn't it? Yeah, I had one bad one down there as well. Several bad ones, I guess. Uh, you leave from either the community of Herring Neck or... Uh, Mirrored Harbor, and depending on the wind and the sea conditions, sometimes from bikes aren't uh, a little bit more sheltered. But we d- we done that by speedboat as well. You leave from uh, two light keepers would go out. It was only by boat was probably five miles, four or five miles maximum. But it was open Atlantic, no no shelter anywhere. So uh, it gets tricky in the fall of the year, and um, so usually you could go right into the cove, right under the lighthouse, and throw your supplies aboard and, and like you could do uh, do the change over there. It wasn't quite so rugged as Surgeon's Gulf Inn. Uh, Surgeon's Gulf Inn cliffs were sheer cliffs, basically. And back of you had the option on the back of the island was what we called Bowel Gulch. And that's where we had a uh, another witch and spire and boom where we'd keep our government Coast Guard boat and a boat house. So if it was real rough, you do your change over on the back of the island and uh, take your supplies across. But uh, one time we got caught again, this was in de- in December, doing a, a change, waiting for a helicopter and the chopper was canceled again, right? And we were a couple of days overdue and uh, same incident. There was a snowstorm coming and chopper would be hit for more days. So uh, the buys hired, yeah, the two keepers that was ashore that was wanting to come to work. They hired a local uh, boat operator and Still, that was like a 18 foot speedboat. So they they hired him. He brought him out. By now, it was two three o'clock, really late for a changeover. We always used to do it early in the mornings, but the weather was bad, so we we put a push on it. Uh, the guys came out and uh, done the changeover. Got the supplies on and off. Keepers switched over. It wasn't sea conditions. wasn't wasn't bad. The storm hadn't hit, but uh, it was brewing. We got. Off from the cove there, we got out about 500 yards probably, and all of a sudden the, the storm hit. It was in the forecast. We knew it was coming. And it just, boom, zero visibility or 100 feet probably with snow, blinding snow, uh, strong north, northerly winds. So it was horizontal in your face. So we had to go this uh, four or five mile of open water in the boat. And you couldn't see the headlands. You couldn't see where we are going. We were just pointing for the best. I was the, the rookie, so I just 
put my hood up and let the guys, the experienced guys, uh, get me home. And we steam and steam. It should have only, uh, within a, a half an hour, uh, 45 minutes, we should have came to some uh, familiar landmarks. We had, to, we had to do it slow because it's really, really stormy. We just continued and continued and no land, no land. So I could see the look on the, on Ralph's face. He was getting concerned, the co-worker. Uh, he, they knew they, they were off course, right? And uh, with the wind and the spray and the snow in your face, you couldn't tell if you're going east or if you're going, well, you couldn't tell if you're going south or going west. We had no, uh, this was before cell phones or uh, we had, or GPSs. Should have had a compass, but the, the operator didn't, forgot his compass, so he never even had a compass. So uh, we stopped, did in the water, and just, you know, size, size up where we're to, right? And, you know, we're all getting sort of anxious. And so we just continued on another another uh, slow speed, just take our time, take our time. And finally, after about an hour, we came across some rocks. But because the visibility was so poor, we couldn't pick out any landmarks. And uh, the two men were from there. They were quite familiar with every rock, every crack down there. But uh, when your background is void out, you can't tell, you know, where you are, really. So we just went around shore, around the rocks, just hoping uh, to find something familiar. And after another uh, bit of time, we somebody spotted a rock that you were familiar with. And we had, we had gone to the west a couple miles, totally off course, right? We were way out of uh, where we're supposed to go. But once we seen this uh, familiar rock, uh, we still had fuel in, in our tanks. So uh, we had to turn around and go back. Uh, skirt around the shoreline and find the entrance to the harbor and get home safe. But uh, it was uh, it was a bit unnerving at, for a while there, right? Then just a typical day as, <laughs> as being a lightkeeper in Newfoundland. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not the only one that ever done it. But, uh, you know, this that was part of the job. Yeah, yeah, you made it. That's the important thing. So speaking of poor visibility. Let's talk a little bit about the fog signals. Of course, these days, some uh, fog signals have been deactivated for the most part, like in this country, and it's probably the same there. The ones that are still active are Mariner activated now. So people activate them with their VHF radios. Do you have that system there? Some places got that. But yeah. uh, the back then, uh, we had what they call a videograph um, on, on all the stations. That I, but one point, they all have electronic horns now, but at the time, Back in the 80s and 90s, uh, Long Point still had the hair horn and, and yep. uh, Surgeon Scovid, Bacalao, and Puffin had the, the electronic horns. I call them Japanese horns, but uh, they were the electronic horns. But they were activated. They could be turned on manually. Or uh, they had a system called a videograph, which would shoot a beam of light out two miles. And if it didn't bounce back, that means it was clear visibility. But yep. if the light bounced back, that would trigger your... Uh, your horn and it had a so many minute delay just to make sure it wasn't just a, a flock of seagulls or something but uh, that would trigger the fog horn and and uh, start it up right and that worked pretty good but conditions uh, in the ideal world works but uh, out there salt spray would would throw off your readings if you get hot freezing ice freezing glitter on the side of the building that would uh, would disactivate it so uh, you'd have to go scrape the house off it or turn it on manually, right? So it uh, it wasn't a perfect system, but that's what uh, that I had experience with was uh, one one hair horn and and uh, 
the other three stations had uh, electronic fog lamps. Yeah. Uh, I know that on the main coast, the, the places that had the most fog, the signals were generally operating in the neighborhood of 20% of the time over the course of a year. Do you know uh, approximately how much they were operating there? No, we never, years and years ago, uh, there used to be a, a foghorn logbook, but uh, they discontinued that just uh, when I got into the system in 83. So we never kept a hourly log. It varied. Some stations are worse than others. And, you know, snow conditions set it off as well, right? So, yeah. you know, 20 would twenty could be a good average for sure, right? You get in, in the spring of the year, you could get the northeast wind, rain, and fog for days and days. I think the longest stretch I ever went was 11 days. Mm. And I don't mind two or three days. You know, the horn is blasting all the time, right? But what, what used to get to me is, uh, you know, you're sitting just above the ocean, 200 feet or 300 feet, and uh, you couldn't see the ocean. You know, you might be able to hear a, a, a motorboat or a speedboat going by, probably right on the water, yet yeah, was better visibility. But uh, 11 days is the longest that I went with the horn blowing, and uh, it, it gets uh, annoying after, after a few days of that just looking out into a white cloud, right? Because usually your kitchen window, my house, you know, you had the ocean, you could have icebergs, you could have humpback whales, Mickeys, anything. But uh, when you got zero visibility for days on end, it gets testing. When the horn was going that for that long a stretch, did you kind of stop hearing it after a while because you get so used to it or were you aware of it the whole time? Yes, yeah. I didn't have problems, you know, like on your, on your shift off, I, I had no issues. I could, I could go to sleep, right? Like it, it didn't affect me, right? It was just autopilot, I guess. Yeah. You get used yeah. To it. yeah. Yeah. Bacaleo Island Lighthouse is, is painted with red and white spiral bands. I think maybe you had to paint it at least once while you were there. Is that right? Yes. We, the, the lighthouse, with, you know, that was a cast iron tower uh, built in 1894, like I said, and uh, it gets rusty. So, uh, Every couple of years, we had the the work schedule on on my on the light edges I worked. Everything was painted in two years, in a two year cycle, inside and outside. The towers, the spire and boom, the little side buildings, the dwelling, and inside as well. Most times in the winter, you you uh, was lots of lots of maintenance, lots of upkeep. Uh, so the light tower on Bacaleo was the prettiest one that I the four light stations I worked on. It was the prettiest. Uh, tower because it had to swirl like a candy cane but uh the, the paint the rascal it was uh quite the job because it's up up on the very highest part of the hill so you'd uh, to transport all your paints your brushes your ladders your rags your paint thinners oil paint is what we used all the time so uh with this tower in particular 1989 i painted with ralph he was the principal keeper you'd have the chip all the rust blisters off it, let it dry, then apply a primer, a ugly rusty brown primer to it, and then go back and do it with, with either red or white, depending on the swirl. And you're up on a ladder, you know, you're dangling. I got pictures of me up on a ladder painting the tower, and uh, I got a little piece of rope tied around me, right? But uh, I don't think it was safety approved uh, by no means, but it was all part of the, part of the, the job at the time but uh i painted in 89 with uh dear ralph and i guess over the years ralph must have became colored blind because mm-hmm. when we we're uh applying the primer he thought the primer was the actual glossy red 
paint. And I had a hard job to convince him. Like, uh, he said, no, it's mislabeled. Like, he really didn't bleed. And I took me a couple of days I, to, to convince my co-worker that uh, we can't paint this beautiful tower with primer amboy. And uh, he he took my, my word for it, but I, <laughs> he took a bit of convincing, I tell you. But, uh, you know, you get, you get up on the ladder, you chip it, and you prime it, and then you get up right up. To the to the top of the tower, that tower was 25 feet high. So you get up 25 feet in a, in a ladder, and you take two gallons of paint with you, a, a glossy red, and a glossy white, uh, lid base paint, two brushes, and you come down with your with your white and your red as you go down, and it looked beautiful. But if you get one darn drop of red on the <laughs> fresh white paint. It was a disaster, it's and ruined, uh, yeah. so you had to be really, really careful. And you had to, you had to wait till a, a calm day, which is hard to get on these light houses. So it was you know it would take you a month probably to do it to do a tower and do it properly. But yeah. it looked beautiful when it was finished, man. It was you know you I was proud of it, right? So yeah. I, I done a funny story. I done it with Ralph, who was colorblind in in eighty nine. In ninety one, Ralph was off on holidays, and it's time the two the two year schedule fell to me again. So uh, I had a, a relief light keeper with me, a younger guy at uh, my age. So uh, we got along good. And uh, so we took all the paints, done the same thing, gets up ready to go painting. And five minutes before we start the, the project, my buddy tells me he's, he's afraid of heights. <laughs> and I, I thought he was joking, but he wasn't joking. So I ended up painting the, 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 the whole darn tower again by myself. <laughs> and uh, Gord painted the, the bottom uh, six feet, probably, right? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it sure looked good when it was finished. Uh huh. Afraid of heights, it's not even a very tall tower, though, right? No, but it, ladder. The ladder's about spooked, I think, right? Yeah, no. yeah, I can understand Dangling. that. Yeah. yeah. Certainly, fear of heights is a very common common thing, too. Yes, yes, yeah. It's yeah. two interesting paint jobs. Yeah, that sounds like it. So, those of us down south here in the States, kind of when we think of Newfoundland, we think of really, really bad winters. And I don't know if we have a, the correct idea about that, but how bad were the winters at these uh, these light stations where you were? Uh, a lot of snow and ice? The snow, not a real lot of snow because most of it just blows off. So much wind that uh, it just blows off. You know, like Long Point up 300 feet above sea level on that place where I live there. It, no snow hung around. It just blew inland. It's just too much wind. It was, that mm -hmm. place was the most vicious place I ever saw wind. Uh, and the other light stations, uh, you know, you get a good dump of snow and some would stay around. You get the hardy ice uh, around Notre Dame Bay is where these light houses were. It comes down from the north, depending on Mother Nature, but it fills in uh, the bay and you get rough hardy ice for miles and miles right to the rise. And that's when the icebreakers, Canadian Coast Guard icebreakers got to... Uh, uh, escort tanker ships or freighters or paper boats back and forth, right? The winters, you know, they were long, but you make the best of it, uh, whatever it was. You know, on back layout, uh, when I flew out there in the wintertime, I, I, I brought my cross-country skis. So it, it was, that was, you know, I'm the first light keeper ever ski across back Island, right? I, I'd go, I'm a day off. I, I just go, it was only two miles long, right? But it was hills and bogs and ponds and trees and valleys and sea caves and it was 
a real mixture of uh, of landscape, right? But uh, the winters, you know, s- snow dependent. Uh, Sergeant Scovid, I know we got dumped there a few times uh, with a bad storm. Uh, my, myself and my coworker had two little small motor, uh, Elans and motorcycles, twelve horsepower Elans, solo wheels. That right. Uh, I know one time uh, it was a real bad storm. The, the schools was closed for three days in in the bay in, at home in Lewisport. And so uh, out there uh, was so much snow in amongst the trees. We couldn't get, when when you, uh, at, at Surgeon's Gove, when you go leave the station and go into the harbor, uh, you had to go uphill. And it took us days to get, to break the trail and uh, finally get up there because there's so much snow, right? But it depends on the wind direction. But most times, you know, the snow blowed out. You get some snow, but, you know, winter, they would be lying, but you wouldn't get a lot, a lot of snow. Just uh, the hardy guys would, uh, would, would sock us in, right? Well, speaking of winters, you you write uh, in a few places in the book about Christmases at these places over the years. There's a few interesting stories, but maybe we can talk about at least one. Uh, can you tell me about the Christmas you spent at Bacaleo Island in 1988? Bacaleo, yep. That was my very first Christmas on a isolated lighthouse. Uh, I'd, I'd done four on Long Point, but I was, you know, it wasn't remote, but the Bacaleo was really isolated. So we flew out there um, a week or two before Christmas, probably a week before. I took a half a turkey, actually. It was only two of us. So I took a half a turkey out uh, to have for Christmas Day. A couple of Christmas gifts that people gave me and my wife or girlfriend had gave me. And I had one from a co-worker. So I, you know, all that Christmas, I always did. I always cut a Christmas tree from day one. Still do to this day. I cut a real tree and put it up. So I ended up out on back of Lale. And the guy working with me was another old timer, but he was he was only a part time. So I was uh, I was the senior guy there. But nobody have ever had a, had a uh, Christmas tree on the island, right? It was old school. The old guys didn't believe in celebrating Christmas. And anyhow, as Christmas got closer and closer, I was you know missing Christmas, and I wanted something, some little uh, remnants of a Christmas. So uh, I talked to Moon, my coworker. I uh, said. I might go back in the in the valley there and cut a small Christmas tree. And he was flabbergasted. He couldn't believe it. You know, n- never been a tree on this island before, right? Like, it was mm-hmm. taboo. And so I'd never done nothing about it. And, you know, got closer and closer. Christmas music on the radio and Christmas shows on TV. Mind you, all we had was a black and white TV at, at that time in 88. And uh, anyhow, I said, no, I'm having a Christmas tree. So I went up in the back. Cut this little stumpy four foot, five foot Charlie Brown tree. <laughs> came back, put it in a buck in a bucket with some rocks, and I did take a, a very minimum of decoration, but just something anyhow. So I set up the tree uh, Christmas Eve, set it up, and uh, my old co-worker, he was, <laughs> he would, he didn't think too highly of it, right? He, he didn't think a Christmas tree belonged out there, and. I vetoed because uh, I was the, the senior keeper. He was assistant. And I said, you know, I'm putting the tree up for a few days. So put the tree up and, you know, it wouldn't still not much Christmas spirit. My loved ones and family was back miles and miles away from me. My friends was all celebrating Christmas. I, I get a couple phone calls on the mobile radio or on the phone, but uh, my, my communication was, was the darn CB, CB radio back then, which wasn't very good. And uh, I put the tree up 
And I was lonely. I had Christmas blues, I guess. Christmas Eve, I remember, you know, you're, you're missing being with, with family and friends, right? And uh, I, I went down in the basement. There was a dartboard there, so I played a game of darts by myself. I think I won, but uh, anyhow, I was I, I had the Christmas blues with Christmas music on the radio, and, and uh, I was off shift, so I went upstairs and just jumped into bed, just wishing for it to be over. Next day, it was a it was northeast wind and rain and snow, a messy day. I hardly got out of out of bed, and uh, tried to make the best of Christmas. We had a we had a meal, we exchanged gifts, and but you know, in the meantime, the old guy was still grumbling about a Christmas tree in the living room. Uh, so after about three days, I said, uh, you know, enough is enough, and I took the darn tree, never even, never even took the decorations of it, and just. Chucked it out over the cliff into the into the wild Atlantic Ocean, and that was my experience with a Christmas tree on on uh, Bacalao. <laughs> yeah, I know. Again, there's other Christmas stories you tell in the book, but we'll uh, can save those for when people uh, read the book for themselves. You talked about storms a couple of minutes ago, but any storms we haven't touched on that really stand out in your memory from these places? I had a couple of bad ones on Surgeon's COVID. One was. The, the storm that I, I told you about that had all that wind and, and the schools were closed for three days. Uh, we had that much wind that night. It was blowing over the house. It was from the northeast. And it was probably 70, 80 mile an hour wind. And uh, it sucked one of the windows out of our uh, the dwelling. Mm. There was so much wind going over the house. The, the window cracked. The glass, now one shard came in the house and just sucked out. The, like you see in the movies when a when a airplane gets uh, punctured or something, right? It was, it was a, it was a scary night, but it was, a, it was a bad storm. I got caught in another one in uh, a freak uh, snowstorm in June. If you want to hear about that one, I can tell you. I was uh, working at the lighthouse, but at the time, ninety-two or ninety-three, and uh, I came in the bay. Like uh, usually, when you go out on the lighthouse, you're there for thirty-two days, and that's it. On Surgeon's COVID, it was 20 miles out the bay, but the hard time, if conditions were good, a lightkeeper might run home for a couple of hours to get a few supplies or whatever and return again, right? If on your day off, if conditions were good and all this. So uh, this was in June, June the 4th. I had made plans to uh, come in, visit home in my speedboat. I had my own boat anchored in the harbor. So you get up like six o'clock in the morning, you had a hour hike across the highland, jump aboard your speedboat and uh, cruise in the bay. Uh, at the time, I was doing uh, a uh, big renovations at my house here. I had a contractor here doing some work. So uh, I sort of had to come in and uh, he had some questions for me on the, the renovations that he was doing. So I came in, picked up a couple supplies, had a quick lunch with my wife and turn, turned to leave, go return to the lighthouse. It normally takes one hour by speedboat. When conditions were good, uh, but just when I was leaving the light, I, I leaving home, my home uh, at Porterville, I noticed the wind had changed. It was uh, cutting in from the north, and forecast didn't call for any of this. I, I cruised for about a half an hour, and then I hit snow. It was actually snow June the third, June the fourth or third, one of it. It was snowing as it went out to Bay further. It got cooler, and the seas built up, and it just got terrible. It got couple hundred feet visibility again and I had to get back to work or I'd be in trouble. So I cruised and cruised 
uh, I had to trim. I had to trim the the western shoreline, keep out, keep a high on the compass, and just cruise line shore like quarter throttle, and get out uh, close to the lighthouse, close to Explice Island. But there was a body of water. I had to cross uh, what they call the ship's run. I had to leave Muddy Old Point and cut across to Explice Island, and that little short section is uh, a couple kilometers long, but. You're totally exposed to the northerly winds and, uh, and the snow. I got there and I knew you know, it was going to be pretty risky going across there because the, the wind was increasing and the snow, the visibility was just terrible. And, and the sea was rolling in like you wouldn't leave. So I just I just stopped at Muddy Old Point for a few minutes, got, got a breather. I had VHF radio contact with uh, my co-worker. So I told him where I was to and... Uh, I told him what I was going to attempt to do across this uh, ship's run. I just made sure to check my fuel supply, my fuel lines, make sure there was nothing to move around, any paddles or ropes to get uh, bounced around. And I, I left the shelter off that little point and, and started my uh, my trip across my, uh, the ship's run. And it was just terrible. I was only in a 17-foot boat. My boat was a small one. And I used to have to cut my boat into every every minute or two. I used to have to cut my my boat into the big swell, ride that out, straighten it up again, and try to keep a, a bearing on my compass. And all the time, the snow was beating in my face. It was like bullets into my face. And I cruised and cruised and, you know, cut into the swells again. And next thing I seen land. And when I, you know, got a little, got a little closer, it was the same point of land that I I left from. And I mysteriously made a full circle in zero visibility and didn't know it. And, and I was just, I, I couldn't believe it. The first time I've ever done it. I've heard stories about it, people walking or skiing in, in zero visibility. So I regrouped and tried it again. And swells were coming in. I used to have caught into the swells. And I'd done the same darn thing again. I'd done it twice. Wow. I couldn't believe it. I'd done two circles and I went back, called, called my, uh, my Arch, my co-worker on, on the lighthouse and said, uh, Arch, I said, uh, I'm going to try it one more time. If I don't, if I don't make it across this time, I'm going to go back in, in the bay and break into a couple small fishing cabins that I saw and, and ride out the, the storm there. So I, I had contact with them and I, you know, check his weather conditions. And he, you know, it was terrible there, just a few miles north of there. So I attempted one more time and spain paying extra extra attention to my compass. And slowly, 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 I timed it. I checked my watch before I left that point of the land and to see how long, right? And 30 minutes later, I arrived on the exploit side of this ship's run. So I'd made it, but it was a scary, scary the most scariest time I've ever been in a boat by myself. Yeah. And I cruised down into the harbor. The harbor was, uh, was in the middle of the Highland of Splice. And Splice is, uh, is two islands in one, really, but a, but a harbor in the middle. It used to be a big fishing community, but it's resettled. And I stopped in there and tied up my boat. And when I took my cap off my head, my baseball cap, there was about four inches of snow just packed onto my, my cap just from the, the slop snow. But it was a scary, and this was June the 4th. It was a scary, yeah. uh, scary boat ride for, for June month. And uh, I don't think I ever went back, went ashore anymore after that. Wow. That sounds like a real nightmare. 
I've seen uh, hailstorms that left, uh, you know, white stuff on the ground in summer, but not not actual snow in, in June down here. That's uh, up even where you are. I'm sure that's pretty unusual. Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's talk a bit about wildlife. Uh, you we talked about seals earlier, but whales are another common thing you would see at those uh, around there. Was there a variety of kinds of whales? And part two of that question is, did you ever have any kind of close encounters with any? Yes. Um, actually, part of our job was giving well reports mm-hmm. to uh, the Memorial University, their well research department. We were given forms by the university and it, it, any sightings, you'd have to uh, write down uh, the type of well if you knew it. Because uh, you can tell, you know, we'd have hookback wells, Mickey wells, and uh, they were the most common ones, some dolphins. But you could tell the uh, distinguish the different uh, wells by their tail or their spout when, when they blow, right? Yeah. So um, you, you keep a tally of uh, whatever wells you see, right? So that I used to enjoy that, recording the wells and uh, sending them to the university. Um, my only one real close encounter was that time I was out seal hunting. I'm back a lale. I, I was hunting for, for a seal, but I never did get it. So I just out, uh, I give up on the hunt. I just out admiring the beauty between the ice pans and the flat common Atlantic, right? And I seen a humpback breach. He came up there and uh, he was feeding, I guess, because he was some activity there. So he dove and I, uh, I had my camera with me again. So I scooted over in my speedboat to where, uh, where the whale had just dove. And he leaves up footprints, what they call where the dive, when the humpback goes down. And I parked right in the middle of this footprint, and it just, the waves just rippled out on both sides of my little uh, 18 foot fiberglass boat. It was a Coast Guard boat. And uh, I said, man, this guy is, he's big. And uh, so I sort of got spooked out there by myself. I'm out three, four, five miles all by my lonesome in amongst the ice band, not a soul around. And uh, I got a little spooked, so I said, I better head back to the, to the lighthouse. And so I, I, uh, I, I put the mortar in gear, and I just looked over the side, uh, just curiosity. And when I did, the humpback was only four or five feet in under me. I could see the white sides of his fin. He was swimming just below me, just, you know, sizing up, wondering what this, this lonely lightkeeper was doing, I guess. But it you know, was quite the... Quite the encounter with Mother Nature. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Uh, it brings back a, many years ago, I did a whale watch out of Gloucester, Mass. And right near the whale watching boat, there were a couple of guys in a really small boat, small motor boat, and the humpback went right underneath them just like that. It was really close to the right. surface. And all of us are kind of gasping on the whale watch boat, you know, and they're on <laughs> one side of their little boat looking at it that they run to the other side. They're looking at it, but nothing happened. I think the whales no, are no. pretty smart and they try to avoid any collisions like that wow yeah. so what other kinds of wildlife did you typically see at these places there was orca wells as well i forgot, I forgot mm-hmm. to mention them yeah um, birds lots of birds and bacalao especially um you get eagles gannets puffins or saltwater pigeons we call them actually the hard uh, the hard puffin not many and uh snowy owls you just get snowy owls in there they were beautiful it's the only time i ever seen them I guess they fly on the outside hedges of the of the, the northeast coast of Newfoundland. But in the wintertime, when I ski down over the highland, uh, quite often I'd, I'd see these two big, beautiful owls uh, just pitched there, right? And uh, 
they, they were a treat to, to see, you know, like they were just huge. When they take off, you could, you could almost feel the wind on, from their wings, right? From their wings. Uh, Ptarmigans was there. When I, I go down, also on Bacaleo, you go down across the island and uh, berry picking or just out for a, 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 a hike to, to clear your mind. These darn birds would be right under your feet. They'd just take off out of the bushes a few feet from you and just scare the living daylights out of you. Because I'm out around the islands, only me and the other keeper, and he's back a mile and a half from me. There's no, not a soul around, right? But these birds used to used to give me uh, quite the quite the rush. Yeah. We had uh, the tree down back, Lale. One of these times, we I was down across the island berry picking uh, with my beagle, Gypsy. Uh, she flushed at a fox this mm. one time, and we've never seen a fox on the island. It was a dirty old gray fox, and uh, I was just you know curious where it came from. I figured it must have crossed, came out on the ice from the mainland, and uh, I seen it that one day, and then it disappeared. And later in the fall, I looked out this day. We'd be cooking di- dinner again at, at Bacalao, and I looked out the window, and there's... Mr. Fox sat down about 200 feet up from the dwelling. I guess with the windows open, we were cooking, you know, good grub. It smelled the food. And by now it's, it's, uh, it's food source had been, uh, been getting really low and it started hanging around, uh, the light edge. So I'm a dog lover. So I started throwing food out to the, to the Fox and I throw it, you know, 50 feet first and next day, 49 feet and you know over weeks and weeks i dragged them in closer and closer and closer and um, over a couple months period i got it on videotape of them taking it 10 feet away from me five feet away from me and the very closest i ever got is holding out a fork and it taking the piece of meat from my fork and scampering wow. back and, and eating it but it took months and months for them to trust me and if I blink, when he come in, the the fox would flatten down to the ground as flat as it could, with this wild look on his face, and accept my my food, and then scamper off. And this that went on for a few days, and then one day suddenly, it showed up with a pup. It was a female fox, and it had a pup, and it was a hardy fox. By now they turned pure white, uh, which was really amazing. I've never seen a hardy fox before. But uh, it was there with his pup. And uh, so then, you know, I got thinking it had to come down in the spring on the hardy hoist floor, right? Because we, we do get the hot polar bear have been seen spotted in, in the northeast coast, right? So uh, I guess the fox came down on the hardy hardy that spring, stayed on the island all summer. And in the, in the fall of the year, started getting hungry and, and uh, he started coming to the lettuce for food. And uh, I fed it for... Uh, a, a few months, and uh, I think then finally, when the ice packed in again, it probably hit it off to greener pastures, right? But uh, it was yeah. pretty neat. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Uh, you just mentioned polar bears. Uh, did you ever see any polar bears around your stations? No, I never ever saw a polar bear around my station. I used to have dreams or nightmares about it uh, <clears throat> when I was on Bacalao. Yeah. I'd ski down over the island, right? And, you know, there'd be radio reports of polar bears on Fogo Island, which was just uh, east of me, and sightings in, in Twillingate or sightings up in St. Anthony, right? I, even this this past spring, there was a, a dozen or more uh, polar bears sighted in, in Newfoundland, right, that came down from the, 
on the heist, right? When I was back in Twillingate, uh, my last my last gig there in the 2000s, uh, there was a polar bear sighted in uh, Crow Hid and Wild Cove. Crow Hid and Wild Cove, or Back Harbor, one of them. Uh, a couple of the communities not that far from the Lennox. Uh, they broke it into the sheds and stolen meat and whatever out of deep freezes. And there was a polar bear on loose. And uh, I'm working at the lighthouse by myself. That was on a Wednesday. Thursday, the, the wildlife department was out in their helicopter flying, trying to find this polar bear because they usually tranquilize them and and, and take them, uh, transport them further out on the ice floe. And uh, they were flying all around the lighthouse that day and they found tracks like only a couple thousand feet from uh, from the lighthouse, and uh, they never did find find uh, the bear. So uh, I was commuting back and forth again at, uh, during this stage of my career at Long Point, because he wouldn't let to live there. And uh, I remember because the, the the polar bear uh, sightings around when I went to work that day, I was staying down and doing a night shift, a Friday night shift, midnight to eight o'clock. I, I, I borrowed my father's uh, 3030 Winchester. I took the took the gun with me uh, and went to work with it first time and only time. So I'm down there in uniform with uh, with my uh, my trusty rifle by my side. <laughs> and uh, midnight, I, I go on shift. I had a nap uh, earlier in the day, and then I went on shift midnight. Part of our duties was to record the weather conditions and visibility and wind direction and all that, right? And uh, I always, from day one, like to go out and just stand in the wind, feel it, and be a human weather guide, sort of. By now, it was light snow and a little bit of fog. Everything was white. And I remember walking out of the office with my with my gun and just standing in the wind, right, trying to get uh, get a feel for the wind and, and, uh, and the direction. And the whole time, I'm thinking, you know, you know that darn polar bear, he could be – you know, 200 feet away, a white bear in, in fog and snow, you never see him, right? But uh, that was my closest encounter. I, I, I never did see him, but he was in the neighborhood. And uh, <laughs> it uh, it was a bit a bit nervy, that's for sure. Yeah, I guess it would be. Maybe he was out there in the, the snow and, and fog, but at least I didn't get too close. So uh, to uh, let's uh, shift gears a little bit here. Tell me about your marriage proposal at Bacaleo Island. <laughs> My marriage it's a great proposal. story. Yeah, yeah, that's people like that. That part of my book, I got to say, there's there's different. If, you know, I've had some great feedback on my book, and every, everybody picks out a, a certain different uh, piece of it, right? But uh, the proposal is is a popular one. Uh, I met my wife when I was at Long Point Lighthouse originally back in '84. That's when we're where the magic happened, where we fell in love. And uh, in 1989, I'm working on Bacalao Island in this remote station. And the hard time, you know, if we're lucky, if the weather conditions were good, she worked shift work. She was a pharmacist. So, you know, she won't, you know, she might only get out once a year, twice a year uh, to visit for a weekend. So um, I went in, in the uh, hearing neck and speedboat, picked her up, brought her out to the lighthouse for the weekend. And, uh, you know, we've been, you know, in love. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to propose to her. and. I was thinking Bacalao is as good a place as any. So I schemed up the plan. Um, when I was uh, at the lighthouse, I went down to, there's one little tiny harbor on the back of the island. It's only, it's only about 10 feet wide and it's a little hidden draft about a 
150 feet of rock, and then it opens up to a very small cove, but it's called Bacalao Harbor. Not much of a harbor, but you can manage to get in there. But anyhow, I walked down there earlier that, that day, and uh, I planted a uh, message in a bottle. Messages in the bottles. I, I've, I've thrown a couple overboard in my life. But uh, anyhow, I was going to try this for my proposal. And I knew the tide was up, a little bit of little bit of sea on. And, uh, you know, with any luck, it might land in the right place. So I, I, I ran down 20 minutes down across the island, planted this bottle with a note in it. I, I wrote a really nice note. I wrote it in the shape of a heart. And, you know, on the end of it, you know, basically was, I love you and will you marry? And I put it on the side of the cliff. Went back to the back to the the lighthouse where uh, my uh, Alice was and my co-worker and had a cup of tea probably and then we, uh, we I said let's go for a walk go for a little picnic down across the island so we packs a small lunch goes walks down to Bacalao Harbor right nice little beautiful sunny day and by now the tide is after rising slowly and I'm watching the corner of my high and uh, after about twenty minutes finally I see some movement. And uh, the tide and the wash of the sea pushed this little bottle in, in like 50 feet. Uh, you couldn't have done it no better with a remote control. And it came with it, came in close to the cove. And by now, Hal spotted it and she's getting all excited. So we had to throw a few rocks outside. She, she nabbed it and, and took, opened it up, read the message. And by now, she had it figured out. And, and that was my proposal. So, Thank God she said yes, and thank God the tides didn't take the bottle over <laughs> to change islands or or Fogel somewhere. Yeah, uh, that is possibly the the best uh, marriage proposal <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> I love it. It's it, great. It yeah, I guess so. You're still, I know she's uh, there with you now. So uh, you've mentioned hockey earlier, but we didn't get too much into it. But pond hockey was a pretty big deal at uh, Bacalao Island, right? Well, it was a thrill. Um, you know, I played hockey all for about 50 years. And uh, when I went to Bacalao, it had two or three small little ponds on this island. So uh, I took my skate set. I used to, you know, I had two or three different, several different skates. You know, if you get the conditions, you only get a few days in the winter where there's snow had melted and it was good ice. So I'd skate and, and uh, you know, got a great, great bit of fun out of it. Take the stick and puck with me. But, you know, it's not much fun by yourself. But this one time I was there with Gord. Uh, Gore Jones from Tonegate, uh, he was a relief keeper again. So uh, he was filling in for a shift at the with me. And he was, uh, you know, young blood, uh, young spirit like me. The whole guys would never do it. But anyhow, Gord volunteered to get in it. He played goalie. And, uh, and uh, so we set up. I went up, got a scraper, scraped off the little uh, pond, of, uh, pond there. And... Uh, had a good game of hockey for for a hour or two, right? But just good exercise, good fresh air, bit of recreation when you're out and stuck on a, an isolated island in January month, right? It's you know good for the body, good for the soul. So it uh, it, it worked out good. You know, me and Gord was able to have a few laughs and do it, right? But uh, you know, it was no good for me to uh, to re- suggest that to some of the old guys that work with. You know, they yeah. But it was it was entertaining. It was good. Yeah. I played one-on-one basketball, but one-on-one hockey is an interesting concept. <laughs> but it, yeah. That sounds like you had fun. 
So uh, let's just uh, touch on medical emergencies. Obviously, being in these really isolated places, it was a it was pretty tough dealing with uh, any kind of medical emergency that came up because uh, you were far from uh, any kind of uh, professional medical assistance. But uh, you wrote about something really scary that happened to another keeper at Bacaleo. Uh, it was back uh, January the 15th, 1992. My co-worker uh, injured himself. I had to call up on the service of uh, the search and rescue, Canadian Armed Forces uh, search and rescue helicopter. We had just finished a, a meal on Bacaleo again. Actually, the night before, we had a really, really bad storm of uh, freezing rain. Everything was covered in glitter, ice. Uh, the rocks, the helicopter pad had a half inch of ice on it. It was so bad that uh, my radio antenna had broken off, snapped in the ice. So it was a icy, icy condition, really bad. But we'd uh, just finished our big cooked dinner, and my buddy was taking the garbage out. And I was just finishing up doing the dishes, and when he went to go down the basement steps, he he slipped. He missed he missed the first step and just tumbled the whole way to the bottom of the steps, wow. and really injured his back. And he he was a big, big, heavy set man, and uh, I was afraid to move him in case uh, back. Uh, injuries or whatever so uh i heard the thump and the squeal and, uh, and uh i ran down to see what was happening and he was in the bottom of the steps just crumbled up in big time pain like he was urging almost throwing up from pain and uh i just you know made sure he was okay he was breathing and i had to run back upstairs and i called the canadian coast guard radio station through vhf first and just told him i had an emergency and uh, could you call for a uh, search and rescue helicopter? And I ran back down just to comfort uh, Gord again, put a blanket under over him. And a few minutes later, the search and rescue team from Gander, the airport in Gander, called me and wanted to know uh, his condition and what happened. And just that they were en route, just, just about to leave the airport. And I also told him at the time it was really, really hoisted, so uh, you know, be careful of the the ice conditions here. So uh, I went back down and comforted uh, uh, Gore the best I could. He was no, he wasn't bleeding. He was breathing fine. He was just in a lot of pain. And I just kept him company, assured him that everything was going to be good. I, I, I took down my cassette radio and, and played him some John Prime to him. Just uh, was the only thing I could do. <laughs> And uh, in, uh, I don't know what line it took. It seemed like it took forever, but they weren't. They were probably on site in about 45 minutes. I got here. It's the big Labrador. Uh, this chopper is now replaced. But uh, back in, in uh, when Gord fell down, it was the old Labrador uh, helicopter they used to use. Really big double prop. And I heard it coming. And uh, I went to the radio, talked to him on the radio. And they, uh, they hovered above the the helicopter pad there for a few minutes and determined that it was too too dangerous to land there because of the, it was a strong crosswind. Everything was covered in ice. Plus, uh, that helicopter pad wasn't designed for this big chopper. It was a, a, some, a, cliff, a sheer cliff just to the east of it and really not enough room for this chopper to safety land there. So uh, they had to go to plan B, which involved winching down two paramedics they hover overhead, and and the noise from this chopper in the downwash is amazing. She's a big, she's a big chopper, mm. and uh, 
they they lowered down two paramedics and a stretcher and and the boys came in carefully walked over the house came into the basement where gord was and 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 started doing their uh, first aid on him they you know checked him over put a neck brace on him and then put him in a back brace and on onto a stretcher and uh while they were doing this i was talking to my my superior my boss in st john's and my supervisor told me that I wasn't allowed to stay at the lighthouse by myself. Ms. Gordon was going to have to be flown to the hospital. So I would have to leave as well. So it was a safety issue. You wouldn't allow to be there by yourself, uh, especially in the winter. So uh, I packed the bag real quick and uh, I went out. We, we carried Gord out to the helicopter pad and the big Labrador came came back around again and lowered down their winch, uh, the stretcher, and we hooked Gord on and and uh, they winched them up, up into the side door of the, the big Labrador. And then the second uh, second paramedic winched up, just zipped up like Spider-Man you see in the movies. I, I couldn't believe it. It was about 100 feet above. And this this massive school bus just hovering above me. Like, she's she's big. She's uh, 24, 25,000 pounds, a beast of a, of a machine. And uh, so it was just me and the last paramedic standing on the pad there. And I'm just looking at him, wondering what, you know, what's the next move. Yeah. And before I knew it, he hooked, he, he put a hook around me, wrapped his two legs around and arms around me. And I just spiraled up to the helicopter, right? I, I'd be looking down at the time and just see the, the, the size of the, the helicopter pad just shrink as I'm being lifted up, up into this uh, chopper, right? And by now it was getting dark. And it was just amazing. It was almost like something out of a movie. And he just gently tipped and flew flew uh, over to Twillingate Hospital, which was approximately 12 miles away, and uh, landed at, at the helicopter pad at the hospital site. And Gord was admitted for a couple of days. He had, uh, had some muscles torn in his back, and uh, he was out for a few months. And I made arrangements for, for my wife to, uh, to pick me up. And uh, I went back home for a couple of days. Until the Coast Guard arranged uh, for another relief lightkeeper and and for the weather conditions to improve for uh, for me to go back out, right? But it was it was a scary scary uh, event, and and to see the the paramedics and these professionals in action was was amazing because yeah. I'd had dealings with them over the years, you know, a few search and rescue missions, you know, reporting flares or some boat in trouble. So I've had dealings with them, but I never dreamt I'd ever have to call for their, their services to be. Uh, to, to come to my ladies, but uh, it worked yeah. out good. Yeah. You left one important part out of that story. Just before you were lifted up to the helicopter in the book, you, you, you said the, the paramedic said something to you and this is a G rated podcast. So I won't uh, tell say the whole thing. He's hold on to your something. Yeah. It will leave it to people's imaginations so they can read the book. But I, when I read that, I laughed really, really loudly. <laughs> And I told it to my wife and she laughed yeah, too. Well, so. he, he shouted it to me and I said, I, I was about to say what? Because, you know, it's so noisy. And I never I never <laughs> had a chance to get a answer. He just wrapped his arms around yeah. me and, and I did hold on. Yes. But yeah. It was funny. Well, good thing you, they did it quickly. If you had too much time to think about it, it would have been harder. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Again, you can order Barry Porter's book, Adventures of a Lightkeeper, from online booksellers. You can get a signed copy directly from Barry by messaging him through Facebook. 
Just get on Facebook and do a search for Barry Porter Author. Part three of the interview next week will include Barry's thoughts about automation and de-staffing, and also a couple of spooky stories Barry experienced during his career. For now, a reminder to our listeners to check out uslhs.org for more information on everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers, including tours and preservation grants. If you listen through Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review us. If you work to preserve lighthouses, keep up the good work. We're all on the same team. As always, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Keep a good light.